This archival program of Design Matters with Debbie Millman was produced for Voice America Internet Radio. New programs with better audio quality are now being produced for Design Observer. You can subscribe in the iTunes Store or at the Observer Media Channel on Design Observer. Welcome to Design Matters with Debbie Millman, the show that takes you inside the provocative and stimulating world of design and branding as it intersects with contemporary culture. Here's your host of Design Matters, Debbie Millman. The office is 53 narrow steps up on the second floor of a dilapidated warehouse on Mott Street, one block north of Chinatown. The walls are a cool parchment gray, the ceilings smoky and cracked. There is a faint odor of fried pork, likely emanating from excellent dumpling, which is around the corner on Lafayette Street. The woman at the desk has soft, dreamy features, big lips, moon-like eyes. Her fishnet stockings camouflage six mosquito bites on her legs, and her uncomfortable black slingbacks add three inches to her petite frame, though she still appears slight. She is smoking a cigarette with soft-sucking, somewhat exaggerated, rhythmic exhalations. She is designing a poster for a peace rally. She is fumbling with the type and can't get it right. Should it be bolder? Should it be italic? Should it be red? She gives up and pushes her mouse away. She thinks posters are the cruelest thing to design. There's no place to hide, and she has nothing interesting to say. All she really wants to do is tell the man at the desk next to her how she feels about his shimmering, pale skin, that she is afraid if she reaches out and touches him, that her hand will pass right through him. She wants to tell him that the lazy, green-gray color of his eyes makes her heart ache. She wants to tell him that this makes her happy, and everything she sees is sharp and clear, and she smells every smell as the air hits her, and all this makes her feel as if she could make the impossible possible. She wants to tell him this, but she doesn't. She looks down, she pushes her black, messy, curly hair away from her round face, and checks her email. Then she looks at him again as she exhales from her cigarette. The man has black gold hair down to his shoulders. He hasn't shaved in several days. His Liz Fair cotton t-shirt is untucked, and the singer's pouty mouth is yawning. His khakis are starched, the pleats profoundly apparent. His sneakers are as white as his skin. He is confident and beautiful and bored. He, too, is struggling with the poster. He glances at what is on the computer in front of the woman next to him and believes that his work is less terrible than hers, and he chuckles to himself. He thinks about the night before and wishes he was back in the dirty bar with the bad martinis, or better yet, that he was back in bed with the dirty girl from the bar. He could still smell her sweat on his fingers, and he licks them. They are salty and musky and slightly bitter. He likes this, and he remembers that this is the way she tasted, and he runs his cold, his tongue back and forth across the inside of his teeth. He takes a sip of the cold, murky coffee that has been sitting in the white styrofoam cup for the last two hours. What was her name again? He can't remember. He grimaces. He plays with the type on his screen. The woman next to him sighs in frustration. She slides away from her desk with an exaggerated motion and examines a mosquito bite. She looks up at the man and frowns as she takes in Liz Fair, the white sneakers, the black hair. She tells him she feels like going downstairs for a Starbucks, and as she stuffs a 20 into her jacket pocket, she asks the man if he wants one. He looks up, glances around the dingy room, squints at the curly-headed girl and says, thanks, but no thanks. He's good. 
Welcome to Design Matters with Debbie Millman. I am your host, Debbie Millman, and my guests today are Robin Ray and Michael Strasberger, co-founders of the design firm Modern Dog. Before we get started with our interview, please let me tell you a bit more about them. Since co-founding the design studio Modern Dog in 1987, Robin Ray and Michael Strasberger have worked for retail and entertainment companies, both local and national, and have created some of the most memorable posters, packaging, and brand identity design in our culture. Their work has been exhibited internationally, and their posters are in the permanent collections of museums around the globe, including the Louvre, the Library of Congress, the Denver Art Museum, and the Warsaw National Museum. Both Robin and Michael teach at Cornish College of the Arts in Seattle, and earlier this year, a 20-year retrospective was published by Chronicle Books documenting Modern Dog's poster work. Welcome, Robin and Michael. Thank you. Thank Debbie. you. It's so great to meet you. It's the first time I'm actually meeting you, though being a, a fan in the audience many, many times over the years, um, and it's really wonderful to have you, and welcome to New York. So I know you met in college at KUGS, the Western Washington University radio station, but I don't know much more than that. Tell me when and how you first met, and did you have any idea, any idea that all these years later you'd have done all of this work together and had such no. an impact on the world of graphic design? We definitely didn't. <laughs> Although the night we met, I remember Robin said to me suddenly, do you know a Debbie Millman? <laughs> and I said no, and that was it. <laughs> so, so how did you meet? What what, what happened? Well, I, I um, should I tell her that you were on drugs? No. <laughs> <laughs> no, Joe, we can't talk about drugs on the air. I think he was on some kind of hallucinogenic when I met him. But nice. Were you? I'm looking at you. Again. Yes, I was on mushrooms. <laughs> okay. Wow. But we did meet, uh, kind of through the radio station. I'm sorry, mom. <laughs> and. Uh, you know, he told I. We became friends. Well, no, he, I wasn't on mushrooms at the radio station. Okay. We met at a dance. Oh, that's right. I'm sorry. Just is context. it memory? Is, is it memory? <laughs> amazing. It, memory is just the most extraordinary thing that we humans possess. But I, I remember he called me up at my radio show. Okay. Uh, late that night and started requesting some songs, and then I think we realized we were both in the art department at at Western, and he was. I was starting to become an art teacher. And Mike was telling me about graphic design, which I didn't, at that time, I didn't know what graphic design was. And I think the following semester, I switched over um, to graphic design. So, mm -hmm. um, and we, we dated through college, um, I guess that was four years, and started up the company right out of school because neither one of us could get a job. So you decided to start your own company out of a lack of anything else yes. to do? Yeah, well, it was a... Uh, we showed our portfolio and was thoroughly humiliated <laughs> and realized that we could get a license. Yeah. And so we did that and then just waited painfully for the phone to ring. <laughs> well, now, I, I read, Robin, that in one account... I read a, a number of different accounts mm -hmm. about how you actually got your start. And in one account, I read that you tried finding jobs and were told you looked too much like a hippie yep. to be employable and that you mm -hmm. went out and cut your hair and got a suit and tried all over again. So that's, yeah, that's, that's totally story. true. Yeah, it is a true story. And uh, the very first client we that Mike and I got um, was a, a promoter, a local promoter in Seattle. A, a, a music promoter. A music promoter. 
And I, when I went to see this woman, you know, she took a look at me. I was right out of school. We had just gotten the license, and I showed her my portfolio, and she, like, zipped it up, and she said, you know, she's like, can I give you some advice? And I said, sure. And she's like, you look and smell like a hippie. And I was so, I was just so humiliated. I was. I, Did I you, were like, you wearing patchouli perfume? I was. <laughs> <laughs> I admit it, I was. Hey, Madonna put um, patchouli perfume in her, one of her albums in the late 80s, and it still smells like yeah, patchouli. Yeah, the 80s were all about patchouli, weren't they? That's <laughs> not um, patchouli. So, so I, I was, I, I just out of sheer frustration, I felt like um, when I saw the work that she showed me that that they were looking for, I knew we could do it. And I just thought there was no way that she would ever hire hire us. And so I went back to the studio, and I Mike just took some scissors, and I told him to cut my hair off. And I, t- I bought a really cheap suit, and I went back, and she didn't recognize me. And I think she felt so bad when she realized who I was. Um, and it was literally just like the, it was this was a Friday, and I went in on a Monday. And I said, do I look okay now to, to start working for you? And she just about fell off her chair, and she said, I'm so sorry. <laughs> But, you know, I didn't have to wear that suit ever again, and that's and I, uh, the point was, is like, we really needed that work, and mm-hmm. and I was willing to, like, you know, change the way I looked to get the job, so. And you cut her hair? Yeah. Did I My, cut it? Yeah, you, you cut, cut her it. hair. I cut it. Yeah. And wow. that haircut is what got us the job. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> that memory thing again, yes. right? <laughs> Do you remember Supercuts commercials from the 80s? Of all course. The, all the samples they used, I cut. Is this a joke? Yes. Oh, okay. <laughs> okay. So, so is that doggedness? Would you say that that doggedness is what inspired you to name your company Modern Dog? No, I think it really came from at least my. Um, I think Mike might have a different, um, a different take on this, but I, I felt like it was sort of a fake company initially. Like we would do this for a few years, and then after we actually built up a portfolio, we would be on our way to getting real jobs, mm-hmm. and. I saw it as like a way of sort of hiding our identity, oh, hiding who we are. Okay. Because back in the 80s, it was really about like, you know, Ray Strasberger design or, mm-hmm. you know, Hornell, Hornell Anderson design. Mm-hmm. Everybody named their company after the owners. And so well, I just felt like I think it was just a way to kind of hide. Would you say that's accurate? Yes. And so now it's 20 plus years later. 21, so yeah. 21 years later. Do you guys ever fight? Of course. I always like to ask that about we the love fighting. We were fighting on the way here. <laughs> what were you fighting about? Well, we weren't fighting. It was a one-way thing. Rob been telling me not to cut her off <laughs> about eight times. And also, turn off your phone. I did. Don't forget to turn off your phone. I oh, did. good thinking. Yeah. I think I turned off my phone. I hope I did. I usually do. We um, actually typically warn interns when they first start working with us that if, they, if we get into like this balls-out fight to not get too freaked out, that it's pretty normal. Mm-hmm. It's but over we, in like a minute. Yeah. We don't really stay mad at each other, but we definitely, you know, we, we argue about all kinds of things, including design, design mm-hmm. direction. Mm-hmm. Um, but es- especially. Yeah. <laughs> but Robin's getting better. Oh. The design's starting to look like yours. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so well, it 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 seems to me that you also get into I don't want to say um, arguments, but but issues with some of your clients. Where I, I noticed as I was going through the book, one of the th- or a couple of themes that kept repeating, and one of them was uh, last minute client objections to mm-hmm. your work. Um, for example, uh, your book features stories about clients stopping the presses on the 2006 Ico Grotta poster. Mm-hmm. The Pardon My French poster for the Hurricane Poster Project, mm-hmm. the Tunnel Vision poster for Art Center of Design, 
and the Fish Head Soup poster for Act Theater. We are the biggest jerks. No, <laughs> no, actually, I think it's marvelous that you have as much courage as you do and force people to push the envelope as much as you do. But I was just curious as to what the dynamic is, why the clients would initially say, Yes. Was it your ability to sort of sell them on these magnificent ideas and then somebody sees it as it's going to press and then 1950s movie style, somebody says, stop the presses. Yeah, I, well, I think designers are some of the most uh, critical and and uh, neurotic people there are. And so some of the, like the Icarata poster, for example, it was initially approved and, and you know, the people that I was w directly working with really liked the message. And then... Once it was seen locally by some of the local people in Seattle, they thought I was making fun of Seattle, which I was. Well, there was the, instead of the, the character, it's sort of a... In the land of the blind, the one-eyed the one -eyed monster is king. It's right. Pink, pink cyclops. Uh, so it's a pink cyclops <laughs> holding yeah. a, a cup of coffee, mm -hmm. and, and the coffee is marked Crappuccino. Right. Which is one of my favorite wor new words, by <laughs> the way. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, at the time when I did that, I didn't know that Starbucks was one of the sponsors. Oh. And once that okay, so once that kind of came out, I started to realize what the issue was. And yes, I was making a statement about corporate America, and and the whole sustainability issue, and the fact that there's you know, at, from being from Seattle, we consume a lot of coffee, and there's a lot of a lot of garbage that that creates. Mm -hmm. And so that was kind of the statement behind the poster and and had I known that Starbucks was one of the pos uh, was one of the sponsors early on, I probably would have maybe picked somebody else to kind of <laughs> make fun of, but um, you know, I'm glad that it, it I'm glad it turned out the way that it did. Well, ultimately, despite the stop the presses yeah. moment, they allowed it to continue right. on. They allowed me to go back, which was great. And yeah. and I think it all it all four, no, no, the fish head soup poster, that was ultimately changed on press. Yeah. that you wrote that you posted. But the other three, I think, went to press as is, despite the mid-press stoppage. So, um... Well, the lamb one ended up with the Oh, with the, with the X, yes. I wanted to talk about it. So what exactly... First of all, can you... If anybody's interested in looking at the two at some of the posters that we're talking about, um, they can either go to moderndog.com or they can go to debbiemillman.com, and I have the Tunnel Vision poster and the Pardon My French poster up to be able to look at. But um, if you can briefly describe the Tunnel Vision poster, because I think it's a wonderful story and how you managed to get that through. Uh, well, that was for AIGALA, and they were holding a, an event to thank their... Um, vendors like printers, color houses, uh, all those kinds of people, and so and the event theme was skateboarding, and so they called us, wanted us to design the identity and look for it, and I think because they thought skateboarding, they thought modern dogs, snowboards, and we've done some spray painted looking stuff, and usually when uh, somebody wants like skateboarding or grunge or something, they expect a certain look which we're a little bit gun-shy about. Mm -hmm. And so we decided rather than go for a look, we'll go for strictly an attitude. And I thought about, um, you know, what would, in this situation, what would a skateboarder's brain want to do? Well, first, they'd want to do something that people wouldn't get. And they'd want to do something that makes a statement to themselves. And so I thought about the lamb with the leg falling off and the shag carpet lettering. Um, and there's a whole academic explanation of <laughs> why I thought those things. Could you could you share that with us? I love I love to get the the academic background. Well, we only did it afterward. I had to write that the, up. The backpedaling. Yeah. I had to write that up to try and help sell it. Um, so it didn't exist initially. But I think that's what I like about it is it's just more of a natural reaction from a, sort of a 
rebellious you know stance mm-hmm. and um and I have these things like the the lamb is like the innocent little kid that you know goes skateboard and gets totally injured and just keeps on going and doesn't matter mm-hmm. that's really sort of innocent thing, but then there's the whole rebellious thing of making that an image for that conference right and, and not letting anybody necessarily understand all that <clears throat> and so we just went that way. And they looked at it, and, um, you know, they're really nice. They're really cool people. But um, they're like, you know, we just don't get this, and this is to thank these people, and we want to make sure that they're happy and this event goes well. And so, you know, maybe and it was going to be at Art Center. And it was going to be at Art Center. So maybe there's something else you could do. And so, so we did this other one. We thought, okay, this is to thank all these people. Um, and so what do we do for that? And then so we picked a picture of these people. Um, that are just some random people in an office, just standing there in their suits, uh-huh. looking at the camera, and at the and they sort of represent the people they're thanking. And at the top, I wrote, um, um, "We do uh, for all the crap we do for you. This is the thanks we get." <laughs> and then some little blurbs about skateboarding. And <laughs> they, they actually, there were some people that really loved that poster. Uh huh. But then they just said, "Well, can you go back to the sheet?" Yeah. They're like, maybe we should go back to the sheep. Yeah. <laughs> to the three-legged sheep. And and I actually kind of took over on the phone with uh, the contact down there. And as I was talking, you know, he was really concerned about um, just the kind of reaction that they were going to get. And, and we did print a lot of uh, some of the comments off the AIGA website. Uh, but there were a lot of people who would not let me quote them. So I actually went to try to get permission, and I was told not to. In our book. Here, for so. our book. Um, but some of the things, you know, that kind of came up, this guy... As I was talking to him, he just said, "Well, you know, I just—he was kind of fearing the backlash, and he just said, and I said, well, what? I go, what should we do to make it acceptable? And I and I just mentioned, should we just put a big red X on it? And he goes, okay. And I said, and we can write unacceptable. And he's like, oh, that sounds good. And so that's how that kind of—that's how that came about. Right. It's and one of my favorite posters of yours. I just love the idea that it's just. You accepted the fact that it was unacceptable and deemed it as such <laughs> even before anybody had to say anything. It actually turned out better than had it just been yeah, cheap. Yeah, definitely. So, although I do feel a little bad because I do feel like we backed him into a corner on it um, just by running out of time. Mm-hmm. Um, but it ended up working out great. I mean, their event went great. I just feel a little bad about the process should, them. You should tell them about the Art Center logo you created. Oh, yeah. Well, I know you created a new logo for them. I part did. Of, part of the uh, added value of hiring Modern <laughs> Dog, right? Well, Art Center, you know, they're, when I, you know, I thought it would be cool to make a new logo for them. I, I know that's dumb because they already have an identity. But it would be fun to make a new logo for them. And I thought, Art Center, it's a school. They have art. And so <laughs> I went and found the most quintessential school clip art. I could find which had like big crayons and rulers and a lunchbox and <laughs> eraser and, <laughs> and it's all really cute and then I put some really quote unquote artsy lettering on it which Remedy. happened to be Remedy and wrote Art Center College of Design or whatever it was and made this logo out of it which I loved um, but, but they were just too way too serious I mean they just looked at it way in this very serious kind of I'm sure it wasn't appropriate yeah I, um, I thought they would appreciate the you know the thought, but <laughs> no, it wasn't. It wasn't See, appropriate. It would have been fun if they actually printed up letterhead and put an X through it. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I love that. <laughs> so, so how did you become such great poster designers? I mean, first of all, everything you do is magnificent, but the posters, the breadth of posters in this book, is astonishing. 
It is astonishing. The book has been out what now? Just a few months? Just about a month and a, a half. A month and a half. Since March 5th. And um, what a compendium of, of miraculous posters, I have to say. What is it about posters that has attracted you so much? Well, you know, it's kind of how we started. I mean, when we, one of, some of our very first clients were people who allowed us to do posters. And so for us, it's never seemed like a luxury or an unusual job. It just seems like a very normal kind of graphic assignment. And uh, we know we're we know we're spoiled. But um, some of the first clients, you know, be, beyond uh, Cloud Nine were theater groups. Mm -hmm. And coming out of school, we were you know really inexperienced. We didn't have uh, we didn't consider ourselves illustrators. We had no experience with print shops. And so it was with those really early clients where they just allowed us to be experimental. They would. You know, they gave us a $300 budget, and there was no budget to hire a photographer or an illustrator, and so we had to do everything. And I think that's why our design um, is really it has this really illustrative quality to it, mm -hmm. because it's a. And I wouldn't, you know, I'd say that that was like a real that was a something a, a way that we had to kind of learn to work that way. It wasn't natural, mm -hmm. at least for me, it wasn't. Was it for you, Mike? No, no. And in fact, in the beginning, at least for myself. I wouldn't think of, I never thought of our work in the beginning as experimental as much as just trying to figure it out and get it done. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Like, we just didn't know anything. Would you have considered yourselves illustrators, or would that have been no. a path that you would have considered, we considered going our, we down? We, I'm sorry to, to no, no. do that. Um, we considered ourselves completely... Naive. Fake. <laughs> yeah. Like, like imposters for the yeah. first few years. We just mm -hmm. did not feel like anything. And that and that went away eventually? It, eventually. Slowly. It took a long time. Yeah. I, because I... I I think when you're when you're able to work for another person, when you're working under someone, you learn a lot of things, a lot of the mistakes, and you learn how to like look at color and look at design and talk about design. I mean, I think the first time we ever heard the word vernacular was, you know, when we were in the nineties. When we were getting our butt chewed out by like, Jeffrey Keaty at Art Center. <laughs> or at, yeah. or at uh, CalArts. CalArts. And I remember we were like vernacular, <laughs> what is he talking about? Um, but we really just were a product of like our surroundings, and mm -hmm. I think that's what kind of came through our work. We were around a lot of people who were do-it-yourselfers that were, you know, our friends were in bands, or we were just around, a, you know, a lot of people that thought, well, if you just really want to do something, like start up a design company, you just do it. And I wasn't really like, you know, I've, I, I still get asked this question, like, what is your five-year plan? I'm like, what are you talking about? <laughs> I'm just, you know, I don't know what my plan is going to be next week, let alone five years from now, but... Uh, we just kind of winged it, and we've been winging it for 21 years, and that's kind of what it feels like. And do you so love it? Do you still love it? Oh yeah, I mean. Yeah, we wouldn't keep doing this and going through all this painful stuff every day if we. <laughs> <laughs> and when you started, I know you had you had yeah. a lot of um, you have interns working with you. Mm -hmm. It seems to me that from starting the book all the way to the finish, there there was always about five people. We've been about five or six, and then we went down to just Mike and I in 2000. We lost a big, big account. Kind of rebuilt the company slowly back up to. We just decided to hire our fourth person, so we haven't been four since the 90s. Okay. But we've always been three plus one or two interns. Right. So um, we just decided to actually hold off on interns right now for a little while, just because of hiring this other person, and uh, he's they're listening right now. We hope. Actually, they'd better be working. You'd better not be surfing the internet. <laughs> but uh, so he's actually a Japanese citizen. We're trying to help him with his his immigration. Mm -hmm. 
And do you like that size? Do you feel like that's the right size? Do you ever want to be any bigger? Yeah, we we when we have been bigger, it feels like we're out of control. Mm-hmm. And so I guess part of it is that Mike and I are both kind of control freaks, and we like knowing what is going out of the office. Even if our fingers aren't touching the work, we like to be aware of what is happening. Mm-hmm. And so staying smaller has just allowed us to have more, in some ways, more freedom um, to, to actually take the kind of work that we want to keep doing and to be able to say no to certain kinds of work that we don't want to do. What kind of work wouldn't you want to do? Well, we it's don't, been a while, but... Well, uh, the, the worst case scenario is when we were growing larger and realized that it had our office started having to become this money machine mm. to feed all these salaries. And then it almost felt like, God, I don't care what kind of work comes in. We just need good-paying work, and we don't want to ever be that way. We like being really choosy about the client, the clients that we have and the cl- kind of work that we do. And also, if we get too many people, then Robin and I have to manage, mm-hmm. and we don't like doing that. We always want to be able to design. So we really can't go large. Well, we have a caller on the line. Oh. Um, Gregory from New York, uh, thank you for calling Design Matters. Hey, Debbie. Hey, Robin. Hey, Michael. Hello. Hello. Uh, I, I'm curious, who is the tougher client, a retailer or an entertainment company? It really depends. In I, general, I would say entertainment-related companies because if there are um, you know, people like musicians involved or other really heavy ego-type personalities, that's tough. Mm-hmm. That's a good point. Yeah, I actually spoke to somebody recently that was telling me that when you're designing for somebody like Madonna, you're not designing for the record company no. or the promoter. You're only designing for Madonna, and the only thing that you need to do is make sure she's happy, mm-hmm. yeah. period. That sounds has, like a lot of fun. Has yeah. anyone ever frustrated you to the point of, of giving a project up, oh, yeah. stopping in the middle of a project? Oh, yeah. Well, we try not. I mean, we're pretty good about uh, screening in the beginning, uh, but occasionally a project just you get to the middle of it, and you just there's no way you can go on, and you know you can't do a good job, and it would actually be wrong to continue working. And so we've certainly pulled out in the middle, and we a lot of times we'll refund the money just because we don't want to feel guilty. Wow, well, but that, that you must be the only people that's ever done that ever. Well, we have done that actually several times. Yeah, and walked away. The one um, the one thing I will say about this is that we pride ourselves on being good listeners and really good at um, deciphering what somebody's trying to tell us, and also really good at explaining why we take the approaches that we take. And if we're not able to come to some sort of agreement, then um, then we feel like it's our fault. And the only other scenario is if the client is totally unreasonable, like really unreasonable. There's no way to reason anything, and then that's the other bad scenario. Well, con- considering everything you do and the effort you make, I don't think it's ever really your fault. So everybody <laughs> should be really fortunate and happy uh, when, you, when you come to their table. So. Can we have you call when we have problems? <laughs> sure, <laughs> no problem. Great. Thank, Thank you, guys. Thanks for calling, Gregory. So let's talk a little bit more about the book. It is a book that Seattle Monthly describes as laugh-out-loud funny rockin' coffee table book. And you describe in details on the back of the book as follows. Posters on nearly every page. Most posters shown in color. Numbered pages. (laughs) Written in the universal language of American English. Includes humorous anecdotes. Um, (laughs) All true, by the way. (laughs) So what made you decide to do a book? How did did this whole thing come about? Well, we, about, uh, maybe it was like three or four years ago, we decided that we just felt like we were ready to, have our work documented. We felt like it was 
uh, it would be an interesting collection and you know, certainly ego is involved you, it makes you feel good to, to know that you have a book out and so we started kind of shopping shopping the idea around and it took about three years before we actually secured a deal with Chronicle mm-hmm. um, we did have a couple of other bites uh, we had another another publisher that we really wanted to go with uh, pull out um, for for other reasons and once we signed with Chronicle, and, and we also like took a lot of advice from like Michael Beirut and uh, Stephen Heller. Um, you know, we had sent the the idea out to a lot of our friends, and they commented back about what they thought the book should be, and the kinds of design books they don't like. And what, what was their what was the best recommendation or best advice well, that you got? To be yourself and to really expose who you are. To not, um, you know, we, which we're really good at doing. I mean, we've never pretended to be anything else. But uh, I'm a fireman. <laughs> where did that come from? Nice suit. <laughs> okay, where was I? Um, about the best oh, advice that you I got? I think the best advice was just, um, it actually came from Michael Beirut, and he um, you know, listed a couple of books that I agreed with him that I did not like um, because they felt like portfolio pieces, like a, like a book of the person's portfolio, and mm-hmm. nothing more than that. And there wasn't really anything else behind it, and he... You know, I can't, I can't remember verbatim what he said, but it was something to the effect that make sure that you do this and that you really put your personality and you show your studio and you talk about the work. Um, don't just show it. And, and so then we decided, um, you know, once Mike and I, once we got the deal with Chronicle, we decided, you know, what, now what kind of design book is this going to be? And there was some, you know, a conscious decision to actually make it um, very accessible to make it cheaper. Um, we figured we were headed into a recession. Mm-hmm. We didn't want a fancy, you know, we, we talked briefly about doing an embossing on the cover and making it special in some way. Um, but the idea was to make it, you know, as, as affordable as possible because we just felt that more people that buy the book, that's better for us. So, mm-hmm. um, and we also, one thing that Mike did with the writing, uh, was that he really, wrote about the process, like how we come up with our ideas. Sometimes they are accidental. Sometimes they're, they kind of grow out of like a, a sketch or a discussion. And he really wanted to like let younger designers um, in on how we solve that kind of, you know, how we solve a problem, a mm-hmm. design problem. Mm-hmm. And I feel like it really, um, it really works that way. Now, you organize the book into five sections, theater, events, social issues, self-promotion, and music. Did you leave anything out? Yeah, there was. We left out some retail stuff. Yeah. So <laughs> what, what made you decide to not... In, so, th- so this isn't really a full documentation oh, no. of all of your work. It's, no. it's oh, no. strictly your poster it's work. It's about half. And we have a, so you left all your packaging out. You left all the... Oh, yeah. So all, all the retail work that and you that do. And that was... I'm sorry, I keep like... I have a monopoly on the conversation. Go for it. Uh, That came out of a conversation with Steve Heller. Mm -hmm. So about three years ago when I first met Steve, and I was very shy about, you know, telling him I was thinking about this book project because I just figured he gets hit up on all the books and everybody wants to talk to him about books. And I just, I tried to hold off, but like my very last opportunity that I had um, where I could talk with Steve one-on-one about it, I had brought up with him I, this idea for the book, and, and it was supposed to be, it was going to be like our packaging, like sort of like our greatest hits, mm-hmm. a little of this, a little of that. And he kind of, he got kind of quiet, and he said, let me think about this and get back to you. So I saw him maybe like two hours later, 
And he said, you know, I don't, I don't think you should do that. I don't think you should have a book where you have like, you know, some snowboards and packaging and this big mix of stuff. And, and, uh, I said, well, what, what do you think we should do? And he goes, well, why don't you just do a poster book? Mm. You know, that's, that's how people know you. And, and that's, you know, an unusual part of a lot of, you know, for a lot of other businesses, they, they may do, you know, five posters a year or somebody in their whole career might do 10. But you guys have done, you know, dozens and dozens of posters. So do, you should do a book on that. And it made perfect sense, but it, I just had to hear that, I guess, from another person. Right. Yeah. So um, you asked James Victoria and Rick Valicenti to interview you for the book, and those interviews are contained in the book. I can understand James Victoria. I felt I felt like that was something that I could see as a rockin', raucous conversation. Mm-hmm. The, the, the interview with Rick Valicenti surprised me. Um, I your ass, mm-hmm. but you also referred to him as the dark lord of American design. So my questions are twofold. First, why did you ask Rick? And second, why do you consider him the dark lord of American design? Well, did Matt Porter write that? I think Matt oh, did Porter he? wrote okay, that. that. I didn't know. <laughs> yeah, I think Matt Porter wrote that for the, the Step article that came out about, what well, it was like eight months ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, the, I had met Rick before and I just thought he was just like a really interesting great guy and I knew that he would do a really compelling interview and uh, well he was a great combination of being totally different from us uh, yet in a lot of ways really open-minded and really opinionated all at the same time mm-hmm. well you write in the book that you feel like Rich, Rick's approach is worlds away from your approach and being so critical of your work made him somebody that you felt would be interesting to interview you. Mm-hmm. But I thought that that was rather brave for you to pick somebody that would be critical of you in a book about you. But didn't it make that interview interesting? Oh, yes. completely. Yeah. And, we knew, and we knew that it would be up to us whether we were going to print it or not. <laughs> well, he had some interesting descriptions of your work. In the beginning of the interview, he states that your work is the complete archaeological core sample of the late 20th century or early American graphics. And you sort of put in your own, he said that you just put it all of your work in a Cuisinart and out it comes. And I was wondering what you thought of that, <laughs> putting your ideas in a Cuisinart and then out it all comes. Well, I, I like that because it just is a real, you know, natural thing. I mean, it's just, what I like about it is it's uh, really uncontrolled, Mm-hmm. and more natural. You just get what you get. And I feel like we're, I'm proud of us in that way. I feel like we're not really self-conscious about our work. I think we just do what we do by feeling, mm-hmm. and out it comes. And we don't labor and obsess. No. no. We don't overanalyze our work. We don't like to overanalyze. How we, do you know when something is good? We just or do, go, you even, do you even assess it in that way? Well, do you know when, an, uh, an analogy, I, I don't know if it's an analogy, but a description I like to use for students when they're getting frustrated is like, you know when you're designing something or you're trying to do something, especially with design, and suddenly you do a sketch or something that just makes your hair stand up? Yes. You just go, oh, my God, that's so perfect. And then generally if you do a thumbnail like that, you kill it in execution and you never get that feeling again. Well, I always, we always look for that feeling in the final execution. Mm-hmm. Like when it's done, like your hair just stands up and you feel like, oh, my God, that's so perfect. Mm-hmm. Do, you ever, do you ever argue about... Whose hair is standing up and why? Yeah, because <laughs> yeah, Robin's hair totally gets in the way if it's standing up too much. <laughs> no, I mean, we, Mike and I are very different. I mean, I think that we're, you know, we're, I mean, the, 
the reason why I think our partnership has, has lasted for 21 years is we, we respect each other as, as people and as designers. And I mean, there's no way I could be around somebody that I didn't respect. But on the, but there's another side which I think we're really, we're really different, um, in, in a lot of respects. And, and he allows me to be who I am and I allow him to be who he is, but we'll definitely argue about that. So how you, how would you say you're different? What are your profound differences? Well, uh, one of, I think one of the <laughs> biggest ones is something about me that <laughs> annoys Robin, that? which is how I handle naive typography. Oh, yeah. I love <laughs> naive typography, and I would norm, those are not my kinds of <clears throat> words, mm-hmm. um, but that's the best way to describe it. Um, I mean, sometimes... I, I mean, like typography that is just there because somebody felt like they needed to do it, and they don't necessarily understand it. They're just putting it on the page because they had to do it, and they felt like it was right. And they don't know anything beyond that. Yeah, that drives me crazy. Why? Well, I mean, a lot of times I'll like look at something he's done and just think, "Oh my God, it's like atrocious," or just <laughs> the, the handling of the type is so nasty or and bad. And and then he'll give me some big long explanation about why he's not going to change it or tweak it or anything. And it's just you know, and that's how the argument starts. But um, a lot of it is over over typography and and Mike's. You know, what Mike brings to the table, he's just pretty much like, here it is, here's how it's going to be, and and I think it's cool because it is, it looks this way, and I don't know if this is making much, much sense to, to the listeners, but it's just we tend to go back and forth in that way, and you, I usually let you just... <laughs> well, I don't do it all the time. <laughs> no, you don't. Well, but occasionally. Is your work very collaborative, or do you each work on your own? I know that there are certain posters that have a very heavily Robin-oriented point of view or um, visual aesthetic, and others that are more Mike. But I'm assuming that there are lots of projects where you collaborate. Well, we post occasionally. Also, oh, um, not, not very often? Not a lot on posters. Okay. Posters tend to be more about the individual. Um, occasionally there'll be, you know, like we'll be talk, we talk things out quite a bit and, you know, somebody might say, Hey, make that background pink. And, and so we definitely talk it out, but the person who kind of comes up with the initial idea is the person who kind of, you know, handles the execution and sees it all the way through. We do have a, a, s- a scenario in our office that I really like where we all work in one room. Mm-hmm. All of our computers are facing in. And so as you're working on something, everybody can see it. And we're really, we absolutely do not worry about people's feelings as we talk about work. We just mm-hmm. totally separate feelings from work. Nobody ever ends up in tears? Well, sometimes. But the idea is that we just say what we feel no matter what. Okay. Mm-hmm. We and don't really tiptoe around. No, we don't tiptoe around at all. It's so much better that way. Mm-hmm. Um, and well, it takes an enormous amount of trust. It does, but I teach that way too. And I found that ever since I've just been a lot more honest, brutally honest, um, the students respect that, mm-hmm. and they actually want that. Um, so, you know, I've learned a lot about just being really honest to the point where um, if it, I don't have time to, like, necessarily coddle people. Mm-hmm. And I just it's just a much better way of or- working where, you know, you could just sort of um, kind of say what you need to say. And, and, I, and the people in our office, are, they're used to it now. Yeah, they like it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now, one of, in, in Steve Heller's introduction to the book, he relates how... Um, how Robin, how you described Mike, and you say Mike is really turned off by highbrow design and that sort of big-headed design stuff, many things that end up in design annuals. 
And I really wanted to talk to you about that. First of all, can you can you elaborate a little bit more on what you mean by highbrow design that ends up in design annuals, but then also why you're really turned off by it? Um, uh, well, I'm turned off by design that's really self-consciously preachy or show-offy. Or, and I'm sure, <laughs> thinking about this, that people on the other end of the aisle would look at our work that way, like we're just trying to be um, rebellious, big, brash, colorful show-offs in our own way, um, which may be the case, but I'm not able to analyze that. <laughs> I just feel like other people feel like, I don't know, I sometimes I feel like designers somehow feel like, some designers feel like we're better than other people, or we need to educate the world in some way, or somehow how we're in some elite level of braininess above other people you think? in society. <laughs> yes, yeah. I do. And no, that, I know. That really bothers me. And so do you feel that your work is in response to that or is just the work that you do? I think some of the, at least for myself personally, some of the way I work is in response to that. I definitely feel humble as a person in relation to everybody else. I feel like just your average person. I'm not smarter than anybody else. I don't feel like I have things I need to say with my design. I just want people to be entertained by it and feel happy from it. And I think that's why we do a lot of the work we do, posters and our, our client Blue Q that we do a lot of these fun, happy products for. Mm -hmm. I feel like what we give back um, is just, you know, happiness. That's oh, wonderful. Wow. I'm going to start crying. <laughs> <laughs> now, another, another aspect of your work that I didn't know about until reading your book is how many hidden objects you have in your work. Um, in the Ben Harper, Jack Johnson poster, uh, you refer to a mysterious black shape. Uh, in the Jimi Hendrix Museum poster, Mike, you embedded a love letter to your wife. Uh, and, of course, most famously, you have over 50 hidden objects in your Adobe poster for the Howe Conference in New Orleans, wherein you have things like teeth, a Grim Reaper, a spider, a machine gun, a bear trap, a penis, Elvis, a ram head, Abe Lincoln, an electric chair, a cigarette, scissors, a chainsaw, an American flag, knives, a snake, and even a picture of James Victoria. That's right. <laughs> and that's just a partial list. I think there's over 50 things mm -hmm. in, in the poster, which is a cat. So everything's embedded in the cat's fur, and you can only see it if you look really, really carefully. And there is a key uh, in the book to let you know where all of these embedded objects are. So what is it about these hidden things that fascinate you so much? Well, I think a lot of times, if I, <laughs> I, I, guess, I guess the... Uh, the most truthful part of it is a lot of times we'll come up with an idea for a design that I really like the design, and in a lot of ways the design's really shallow, so it's like, well, let me just stick a bunch of stuff in there and have it be really cool that way. Mm -hmm. At least you're <laughs> honest. Like the Adobe Kitten poster, that's a perfect example. It was for, we were speaking on Adobe's behalf at a design conference, mm -hmm. and, the, and because it was an Adobe-affiliated talk, it wasn't in the... Um, official um, schedule of the conference. Right. So I said, we need to promote this. Let's do a poster. They said, great. I said, what kind of poster could we do at a design conference that would stand out? So I thought, how about like, I don't know, like a kitten in a, you know, in a fluorescent pink background. You know, you see that once, chances are real low someone else is going to do that. You see it once, you'll totally recognize it. You can see it a mile away. Boom, done, perfect. Okay, so it totally works that way. And then it's like, well, how are we going to make this cool so that people will want it? Ooh, I know, let's hide a bunch of shipments fur. And so that's how that developed. So uh -huh. there's always some story like that. 
The, my favorite thing that's hidden in the fur, though, is George Bush with devil horns, and the Iraq war had just broken out. So Osama bin Laden's really tiny, but he's, he's nearby George, but you can't really find him. Ah. Yeah. So are, do you have, um, is there any place that people can buy your posters if they're interested in, in any of our listeners that might be interested in getting them? Or? Well, we actually don't sell the posters, okay. typically. Um, just... Part of it is just the staff. You know, we have four people, and just I've never wanted to get into merchandising. Know, merchandising <laughs> right. in that way. Um, we certainly have a whole you know product lines through Blue Q, and so we kind of have we kind of feel we have merchandise out there. Right. And so it just was. It's a part of the you know the poster world. I never really wanted to to get into. We have another caller on the line. Okay. We have Isabel from New York. Isabel, thank you for calling Design Matters. Hi, Debbie. Hi, Robin and Michael. Hello. I was listening very carefully when you mentioned your uh, coping dynamics and conflict resolution, and I remember when Debbie interviewed Bonnie and Emily from number 17, and it's really interesting just to hear how people who are really good friends, what their dynamics are when they work together, how they resolve things. And I'd like to know, have you ever been on absolute opposite sides of the fence client-wise, like what if one, if you haven't, what if one really, really wanted to work with a client for a particular reason, but the other person was absolutely vehemently opposed to it? What would you do? We would not work with them. Yeah, we we would compromise and not and decide not to work with them. Oh. And that yeah. has happened. I mean, that's happened. Yeah. You know, where I might pick up a vibe and uh, I might have, I might get some kind of reading. A lot of times, uh, you know, it's like, if money wasn't a factor, we'd work with all kinds of people. But a lot of times there will be really cool people that will approach us, and they just don't have the budgets um, to make it feasible for us to work with them. And so a lot of times I have to kind of like lay down the – I deal with more of the money, and Mike kind of in the office takes on like the technical issues with the computers. and making. So we, we do both – you know, we design and we also like run the company. And – uh, a lot of times I'll just look at a situation and think there's no way we can really make money. We're going to lose money, so we have to say no, and, well, and that'll come from me. Yeah, but also there are there are clients that, you know, one of us will want to work for and the other one will have a bad vibe about the client. Mm-hmm. And um, generally what happens is, like, say Robin wants to work for somebody, but I don't feel good about it. Mm-hmm. I'll, you know, say, okay, you know, do what you want, but of course you'll pick up that vibe from me and end up probably not doing it. Mm-hmm. So that's generally generally it works better if we just say no. Yeah. We don't want we just don't like having discord in our office, and so we would not take on a client knowing it would cause stress. Okay. And on the flip side of that, is there an absolute dream client that you both have that who you haven't worked with? Anybody with a lot of money. Yeah. <laughs> actually, actually, we've been really wanting to do that one poster job that pays fifty thousand dollars with no art direction, and I know it's out there. <laughs> <laughs> Do whatever you want. Right. <laughs> Thanks for calling, Isabel. Okay, fine. Um, in in an article in Logo Lounge, it was reported that uh, though you realize that it is ballsy, you take design research with a grain of salt and utterly reject design by committee. And you further say that research alone makes for bad design more often than not, and it's design that has no visual sense. It's designed by accounting, really. When you look at many high-end products where the client has paid a lot for a package or identity, it often looks like shit. Anyone can tell it was designed by committee. The designers went through the process, they sold their argument, and that's what they got. 
but that's but that clients customers don't care about the process at all they just have an honest reaction to the end result mm -hmm. and i was wondering if that response or that belief or that reaction was based on an experience that you had where you had to do research and found that it was utter bullshit or if it was just something that you've always avoided um definitely uh we you know we certainly have had clients that that have brought us research mm -hmm. um you well, know spent millions and millions of dollars on the research and uh just re understanding the process of selling something, especially like a brand, if you're redoing a uh, high-end brand, mm -hmm. there is a whole art of getting that your concept all the way through to the execution and then onto the shelves. Mm -hmm. There is it's that, tremendously difficult. It is, and I, we yeah. have so much respect for like a guy like Joe Duffy. Mm -hmm. um, he is amazing because of the kind of clients he deals with, and and he he has a great understanding of what it takes to get from from one point to the other. Um, so with that said, I mean, we certainly have had experience in the past with that. And, um, you know, we we understand that uh, if certain types of clients are going to come back with, like, a lot of research, but in the end, it's just, you know, it's it if if the design is aesthetically pleasing, it we can, anybody could sell it. Mm -hmm. Right. And... The research part of it, a lot of times, uh, actually can kill a really great product. Any any particular examples that well, you want to bring? Well, um, I'm not sure if I can remember the, the 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 name of this guy, but I know he's um, a very reputable um, um, guy who does like a lot of research and he works with like high end companies like you know, Coca Cola. Uh, Howard Zellman is that uh, his name? Gerald Z Gerald Zellman. 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 Yeah. yeah, he's got a book out about... Oh, 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 oh yes, yes, uh, I know who you're talking about. He, he has this great... He was talking about um, how he did the legs campaign for mm -hmm. Hanes. Mm -hmm. um, Hanes had redone all of their packaging and had... And uh, were about to go to, you know, you know, onto the shelf. They were, you know, they were already produced and they were already manufactured and shipping. And at the last minute, they handed the client... They, you know, asked... I guess hired a... Hired Gerald to... Um, to do some research on this, and what he found was that the packaging, at least the research that they had done prior to this, was like all wrong. Mm -hmm. Because when women put panties ho pantyhose on, they want to feel sexy, and and eat, regardless if they work in a bank or you know, because the kind of women who do wear pantyhose tend to be a certain type of job profile. And when he when he went into research for this, he didn't show the packaging, the current packaging. He just showed like, you know, a picture of like a a run in a woman's nylon. Like, what does that make? How does that make you feel? And so the kind of research that he does, I think, is a little bit more accurate. Like, it's not showing the client. Here's here's one package. Here's another one. Which do you like? Or which do you prefer? Mm -hmm. It's not. He doesn't do his research that way. And so he's able to like kind of sift through it, and he figured out like it's all about sex. And Haynes redid their packaging um, based off the research that he did. So. I do think that there are ways of doing research and getting accurate results, but I think for the most part it's mishandled. Um, because anytime you you put something up in front of somebody in a group, there's always going to be somebody who's going to like say no, you know, there's going to be the antagonist, there's right. going to be the, and it's just a way of understanding how that works. And I just think a lot of research is just really a lot of research is just political ass covering. Yeah, mm -hmm. insurance yes. policy. Yeah. Yes. Exactly, exactly. And if it's not done right, then it really can harm a brand more than it can oh, yeah. help. Um, but you've done a tremendous amount of work supporting social issues. 
Um, you've designed posters supporting gay marriage, voting. Um, do you feel that that is something that, do you feel that designers have an obligation to do work that inspires social change? I don't know if I would say they have an no. obligation, but I would say that, um, you know, as an individual a person, if I have something to say, then I think it's important mm -hmm. um, to be active in that way. At least now, more so than ever, um, you know, we certainly can. Don't need to go into the current discussion about our, you know, our our government. But I, I do feel it's important for me as an individual. But I wouldn't say that designers have to do no. that. Do you feel that either or any of the candidates that are currently in the running for the president uh, are using graphics in a way that is beneficial to them or helping them in any profound way? I haven't noticed anything. No, I mean, uh, there's a lot of, like, grassroots stuff going on for Obama. Uh, I have noticed that, mm -hmm. but um, I haven't really... Not graphically. Well, f there is. I mean, he's got, like, you know, Shepard Ferry's done, like, I don't know, yeah, like, the posters Obama for yeah. him. And, you know, a lot, I think Robbie Connell has actually done some Obama posters. And so yeah. Obama's got, you know, he's definitely got a lot of uh, support in that in that area. But I, at this point, I think it's too early um, to, to know. My... Very favorite poster of all is the poster that I've waited till the, the last bit of time to talk about, and that's your Pardon My French poster. That's my favorite poster in all of your uh, book. It's Pardon My French, um, and then below that it says, Fuck Bush. Um, I was wondering if you can talk a little bit about how you came up with that particular design and then some of the backlash that you received as a result of that design and the tiny bit of type that you put in your book that is almost hidden to talk about the backlash that you received mm -hmm. about the book, about the poster. Well, you know, initially um, I was approached by 25 Above Water, which was another, a different uh, Red Cross benefit uh, poster auction that was going to happen. And, and when I, you know, I had a good... Um, discussion with the the curator of that of that show and told him my intention to make a political statement and you know when he saw the poster he pretty much freaked out and and just said you can't do this and you know I kid you not one of the things that he he actually said was um, I have some interest from the Museum of Modern Art and if your poster is in this collection I'm afraid they won't take any of it <gasps> yeah yes Yes, oh I was. I actually, I kept emailing him like, "Please call me, please call me, please call me, so we can discuss." Well, once he said that, it was kind of like, "Okay, I, I don't want to hurt anybody else's chance of getting into the Museum of Modern Art, so I'm going to pull my my piece out." And luckily, at the time, Mike was doing. Mike did a great piece for uh, uh, the Hurricane Poster Project, which was Leif Steiner from yes. Boulder, Colorado's uh, initiative. And I contacted Leaf and I said, Leaf, this was just turned down. Would you accept it? And he saw it and he said, sure. And I said, okay, you know, I was great. He's like, yeah, in my office, there's some people that think this is awful. And then there's other people in my office that really like it. But, you know, we'll, we'll carry it and then I'll stand by, I'll stand by it. And so, he, you know, he, without his support, that would have never, it would never have gotten out there. And I guess, you know, at the time, it was like a really honest reaction I had to what had happened. And, uh, and a lot of people, you know, a lot of the a lot of the backlash that I got was like, "Why are you blaming the president? It's a natural disaster." And it's like, well, I do blame him. Um, and the fact that he picked Michael Brown, you know, a lawyer, to mm -hmm. become the FEMA director—that's sort of like picking a graphic designer 
to be the FEMA director, in my opinion. I mean, he had no experience. Yeah, that, that would have been actually a, a, a slightly better, better decision. So, uh, <laughs> you know, if you're not going to blame the president, then who, who do you blame about, you know, what had happened? So um, just to kind of wrap it up, I, I certainly got, like, a lot of angry emails, but I also got a lot of people that really liked it, and I've saved everything. Mm-hmm. And I hope to actually someday publish all of it. And so you give us a little sample at the little, very bottom of the That was page. kind of like Mike at the last second just thought, this is so funny, and he, and he put it in there. Well, the book is full of these wonderful hidden gems as well as all of your greatest hits in poster design. And uh, the book is called Modern Dog, 20 Years of Poster Art. And it is a really remarkable uh, documentation of the extraordinary work that Robin Ray and Mike Strasberger have created in their 21 years as modern dog. Thank so, you so much. Thank you so much thank for you. being here. Um, we've come to the end of the episode. I'd like to thank uh, Robin and Mike for being here with me today. Very special thanks to our sponsor, Adobe, Brian, Jeff, and Rubin at Voice America, Lisa Grant and Jen Simon at Sterling, and Edwin Rivera for all of their help. Joining me next week on Design Matters is designer and DJ Mitch Hot- Mick Hodson. Thank you for listening, and please remember, we can talk about making a difference, we can make a difference, or we can do both. I am Debbie Melman, and I look forward to talking with you next week. Voice America Business would like to thank you for tuning in for Design Matters with Debbie Melman. Be sure to listen every Friday at 12 Pacific Standard Time for another exciting hour of Design Matters, right here on the bottom line in business talk. Voice America Business.